Hi, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. And I am really delighted to be able to spend a few minutes with a wonderful writer, Jennifer Duper, who um, recently published a book called Liminal Dreaming, Exploring Consciousness at the Edges of Sleep. And uh, as usual, I will introduce Jennifer formally. And then we have just a host, I think, really compelling topics that we're going to um, riff on for the next few minutes. So anyway, uh, Jennifer Duper is a San Francisco-based writer, lecturer, and consciousness hacker. She's the author of the recently released Liminal Dreaming, Exploring Consciousness at the Edges of Sleep, and the founder of the Oneironauticum, an international organization that explores the phenomenological experience of dreams as a means of experimenting with mind. She also teaches the practice of liminal dreaming, surfing the edges of consciousness using hypnagogic and hypnopompic dream states. Jennifer has lectured and led workshops at festivals, conferences, and venues worldwide. Um, she's an active member of the consciousness hacking movement, has studied with people like Richard Miller, presented in a number of different venues around the world, and obviously has spent a great deal of her life exploring these sorts of things. So Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, I can't wait to get into some of these topics. I really enjoyed your book. Thank you very much. So where I always start is, um, how did you get into this? Before we take the deeper dive into what liminal dreaming is and all that, how did uh, dreams altogether and then more specifically the issue or the topic of liminal dreaming um, become so important to you? Well, I've been an avid dreamer my whole life. And a lot of my earliest childhood memories are of dreams. And I did my um, graduate work, my master's and my doctoral work, um, uh, never quite finished the dissertation, but um, it's studying myth and religion. And I was really interested in sort of the dream aspect of that at the same time that I was a practitioner. And I started teaching dream work um, using onerogens, so anything that creates vivid dreams. Um, uh, using some uh, psychogeographical practices. And then um, I've been teaching dream work for quite a long time. And I had, um, I had kind of a watershed dream one night where um, my, I realized that my body had fallen asleep before my mind had, which is a, which is a thing I now know I can, I can in fact bring about. And I, I, I was having this, Dream. It was a very different kind of dream, a kind of a half there dream where I was fully, fully aware of where I was and um, awake at the same time that I was asleep. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, this is so interesting. I, I, I'm really familiar with these kinds of dreams, these going to sleep dreams. And I mean, how come no one ever talks about that? And how come I've never thought about these before? So I started um, exploring them, both. Uh, Studying about them and reading about them, and also going into the space and opening it up, and la voila, I came to liminal dreaming. Wow, fantastic! And so, tell us a little bit about um, what liminal dreaming actually is, because people in in this audience they're familiar with um, the nocturnal meditations, Jennifer. At least as I articulate them, and, and in case you are familiar with that, I, I use this little map of uh, lucid dreaming. Um, 
evolving into dream yoga, which can evolve into sleep yoga, <clears throat> which can evolve into bardo yoga. But liminal dreaming is uh, a new entry, so to speak. And so define for us what that term means. And uh, then we'll definitely jump into it because I have a lot of questions for you around this one. Sure. And you do write a little bit. You're actually one of the few other uh, people who, who does write about hypnagogia, um, I, which I very much appreciated from your book. Um, liminal dreaming is the, is the umbrella term that I use for the dream states between awake and asleep. So liminal comes from the Latin limen, which is where we get words like limit. It means like a threshold or a doorway, a, a place that's, that's both and neither. You know, a doorway is both part of the two rooms and neither the two rooms. Um, so the liminal dreams are the ones that are between awake and asleep. Um, so it's hypnagogia when you're falling asleep, that kind of hallucinatory... Uh, uh, freewheeling kaleidoscopic uh, uh, phase that we all go through when we're falling asleep. And hypnopompia, the same thing in reverse. So when you're waking up, that, that thrifty half thought, half dream space where you can like, like skipping stone between awake and, and asleep in the morning, that's hypnopompia. And these two dream states um, are uh, both and neither awake and asleep. So in liminal dream states, you are fully aware of where you are. I'm lying on the bed. I'm in my bedroom. You, your waking senses are intact. I can hear somebody. I can hear the garbage man on the street. I can hear the conversation somebody is having near me and understand what they're saying, but also asleep. I mean, I'm, I'm partway asleep. I'm having a dream. I'm in, I'm unconscious partly and, and having dream space. So um, the liminal dreams are that both neither awake, asleep, dream state. And we all, everyone goes through them. We're all familiar with them. Yeah, and I, I think that's what's so cool about what you're doing is because it's a way to um, articulate a map that can therefore bring a more sophisticated understanding of the territory. So by, by exploring liminal dreams, um, we can better understand this kind of trajectory between waking and dreaming and back and forth. And I, I think what's really compelling in addition, um, Jennifer, is that liminal dreaming can be subsumed under a larger rubric of, of liminality altogether, which is where I get super interested um, because this is obviously deeply connected to Bardo principles, which I'll get back to in a second. But the reason I, I riff on this a little bit is that after I read your book, I started thinking a little bit more about um, not just liminal states of uh, consciousness of mind, but liminal spaces and how we experience, um, perhaps without ever thinking about them, uh, liminal spaces all the time, like um, transition arenas, like stairwells and elevators and doorways and hotel hallways late at night and schools during breaks. Uh, what else do we have? Like empty parking lots abandoned buildings, ghost towns, airport lobbies, and, and things like that. And it's it's a really provocative space for me because it's potentially uh, an unsettling space and also, even more potentially, a space that's pregnant with potentiality and ripening. And, and even in tantric theory, in, in Buddhist and in Hindu tantric theory, they often talk about, they don't use the term liminality, but they often talk about these spaces in between 
to be um, particularly ripe for transformation because using Eastern terms, that's when um, karma is temporarily suspended. You know, you're not, you're neither here nor there. And if one can negotiate these, these liminal bardo type spaces, then we have a real opportunity for transformation. And, and, and just, again, the other thing that comes to mind are like even liminal identity, transgender um, individuals, or you could say liminal beings or artists, those who, those who are difficult to pigeonhole. And so for me, when I read your book, it was like, well, this is a really interesting kind of archetype of, of paying a little bit more attention to not just liminal states of mind, but liminal spaces altogether. Um, and that we're kind of hanging through these things because usually we, want to go from one space to the next and we don't really spend that much time hanging out um enjoying the destination so to speak so does that has this also expanded your uh, way of relating to these physical gaps in in one's life and liminality altogether is this a, a byproduct of your own study of liminal dreaming absolutely and i love your your riff just then that's really good i mean liminal spaces are themselves transformation you know, I mean, uh, you know, when you, like when you're walking off the street into your job or, you know, um, when you're, you're, you know, you're going from uh, hanging out with your friends to, you know, to go hang out with your family, whatever it is, like all the different selves that we are all of the time. And, um, you know, and as a culture, we really, we really think about the, um, the black, white, the on, off, you know, we, you know, we love the. You know, we love to think of things as solid state, um, right. but but studying liminal dreaming, I became really aware of the continuity of consciousness, all of the stops along the way between awake and asleep, and that really did get me into what in the book I I call liminal mind, of mm-hmm. um, of becoming aware of these of these transformational spaces these spaces in between and realizing how much um how much of just my day-to-day is really involved with the liminal i mean things as um a, a thing as um as basic where you know even the most hardcore materialist will agree so if there's if there's a sound you know if if across the street um you know a dog barks and then the sound travels through the ear, through the, through the air and goes into my ear and my mind says barking dog. Does the sound of the barking dog, is it with the dog? Is it in my mind? Is it in the air between me and the dog? You know, like where, where is the sound? And I mean, even something is, you know, as basic as that, you know, is in fact the reality is, is a kind of a liminality. Yeah, it's really terrific, and I love the image you use in your book. Um, very evocative, that you know, very paraphrasing you, where we're always looking for dry land. You know, consciousness, um, for instance, is, is use the analogy: consciousness being dry land, the unconscious being water. But to me, it's like we're, like you mentioned earlier, we're pinging, we're we're dancing across, trying to find um, dry land, um, and being somewhat intimidated and even. Um, unsettled with the fluidity, the the, the liminality, the, the bardo-like nature between the gaps. And just to show you how far this goes for me, um, this idea of passing to versus passing through, it, you know, one of my main teachers was Trungpa uh, Miche, and he wrote a really dazzling book on Tantra called Journey Without Goal. And I think what liminality reveals for me on these deepest levels is that we are highly... Um, 
goal-oriented beings for whatever they, uh, whatever that goal may be for us, and that really it's the journey through the spaces um, that I find the most interesting. That kind of relaxes the normal agendas I have for, for acquisition, for stasis, for security. Um, and, and so I think in the deepest sense, liminality points to this kind of tantric ideal that the, the path is, um, the journey actually is the path. And if we can relax uh, our aspirations, ambitions to acquire, achieve, um, you know, find dry land, whatever mo- metaphor you want to use, we can therefore take a greater sense of delight and the, the preciousness of the, of the present moment, however groundless and it, unsettling it may be from an egoic perspective. So um, does this resonate with you as well in terms of your own practice and experience with these sorts of things? Oh, yeah, very much. And, and in the, um, as I uh, uh, explain in the book, um, subjectively, hypnagogia and hypnopomnia are some of the strangest states we have, you know, this kind of non-narrative, free associative kaleidoscopic swirl, but also objectively, they're very strange. You know, if we talk about um, brainwave states, most brainwave states are marked by, you know, a single sine wave shape. You know, we all, you, you can visualize an EEG reading, right? right. And, um, you know, so theta has two, but hypnagogia and apomnia have six sine wave states. So even though it's by far the shortest brainwave state. So one of the images I, I really like is, again, if you think about the consciousness as the dry land and the unconscious as the water, which are pretty common images, where the water hits the land is where all the waves are, you know, yeah. like, and that's where you surf. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I really like the image of surfing consciousness, of kind of like riding these waves and, and sort of seeing where it takes you. But it, it is much more you know, chaotic it is, and in that way, um, does is unsettling, and is a place where, you know, whatever you've got there and your unconscious is gonna, is gonna bubble up, um, you know. So, so rather than the, the the solidity of of walking, just to really push this metaphor, you know, mm-hmm. you, you've got the really having to really riding, really getting into those sort of Deleuzian flows. Uh, through consciousness, and and it's a very different way of experiencing one's own mind. You know, it's, it? it's sort of like surfing these consciousness flows. Yeah, very much so. It's beautiful. I've never heard that term diluvian flow in relation to consciousness. <laughs> I, and you, I was I, I, hanging out some really wonderful um, terms. I, you know, the kind of the non-narrative component of liminality is that that's a very compelling thing to say, um, Jennifer. Because very often when I think about egoic structure altogether. I mean, basically, ego is just a narrative. I mean, it's just a a really bad story with a really <laughs> sad, with a really sad ending, right? And so, <laughs> so, so I, I think this is what one reason. This is so much more. You know, it's very interesting what the way you riff on your work is very similar to what I do with my charter with a, what I call these nocturnal practices. Is is essentially using sleep and dream as an excuse fundamentally to explore the nature of mind and reality. And, and I think you, you do very similar sorts of things. You're using this particular iteration of uh, a phenomenal experience and pointing out how it has all these other applications. And so just this idea of non-narrative is really compelling. It's like, you know, I, I, I often have this experience when I'm traveling internationally. I think it's really quite a potent experience of, of liminal spaces where, you know, you wake up in the, in the dead of night, jet lag, you have no idea where you are. You know, you wake up, okay, well, where am I? And then there's this kind of, you know, the, the narrative of 
itself has been completely um, kind of torn. The page of your book has been ripped out. And so you wake up, the narrative isn't there. And in that gap, if we can hang out in that liminal space, man, is it interesting. But usually what happens is this painful, revelatory kind of Rolodex <laughs> of experience just kicks back in and says, okay, KK, where am I? Wait, there's a little panic, a little panic, a little panic. All of a sudden, boom. Okay, I'm in Tokyo. Yes, with this convention. Yes. And ping, 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 ping. The narrative comes back online. You kick out of the liminal state. Your heart slows down because you, you realize, oh, okay, my storyline's back in intact. Uh, ego's back in line. And so liminality, to me, reveals egoic structure. It, it reveals how um, in, in a very real way, liminal spaces, just like Bardo spaces, are like they're anti-ego. And so when we experience them, um, there's part of it that doesn't, that doesn't want to experience it. The, the kind of groundless nature that these liminal spaces reveal is very unsettling for, for the ego. And so when you, when you speak about non-narrative spaces, I think that's just spot on in terms of the you know, kind of farming into this natural state of consciousness we have every single night that can really teach us a lot about who and what we are. That's exactly what I'm on about, you know. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, people, um, as you well know from your work, um, people want reasons. Why should I be trying liminal dreaming? And there's, it's great for creativity. It's great for problem solving. It's great for healing. There are a lot of um, uh, applications for liminal dreaming, and I explain all of those, and I, and I think they're they're really great. But what I'm really mostly doing is, in fact, you know, consciousness exploration. It's a it's yeah. a really intense meditation when all of there is is the unfolding moment of now. There's not really a storyline you can put around the whole thing. And and um, in the in the liminal dream space, so you're um, the, the what happens is like the, the monologue, right? The interior monologue that organizes your thoughts in your day and creates the story around all, everything that's happening. You know, so I'm taking in all these senses. I've got places that I'm going, reasons that I'm going there, people who I'll see, my relationships with these people. I've got this interior monologue that's always going. Right. That organizes all of my consciousness into the story, but in the hypnagogic and hypnopompic spaces, that that interior monologue actually quiets down, yep. and I have waking consciousness. Right, I have the ability to observe what's happening, but I also have this kind of more pure experience of unfolding consciousness that isn't so much organized by that that constantly yapping monkey mind. And it's a remarkable experience just to see what arises in my mind, what, you know, what stories, what, you know, what images my consciousness puts together. Again, there's, I mean, at the, in my experience at the, um, at the deepest levels of liminal dream, when I'm closest to asleep, basically the, the, it does tend to coalesce into more of a narrative arc. Yep. But at the at the lightest levels, when I'm closer to awake, because you can be 80% awake and 20% dreaming, or the other way around, or half and half, as I have discovered, there are many stops along the continuity of consciousness between awake and asleep. But at the closest stage to awake, but still unconscious, it's it's this incredibly fast-moving, you know, free associative swirl between, you know, with an image, a thought, 
a perception unfolds into this one, unfolds into this one. And, and yet, I mean, you know, thousands of them happening simultaneously, you know, kind of like, I don't know if you've ever read the Avatam Sutra. Avatamsaka Sutra. Avatamsaka. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Avatamsaka Sutra, which is these, these amazing unfolding moments of jewels within flowers, you know, uh, you know, reflecting everything that exists, you know, in, in a, um, you know, the kind of, you know, net of Indra holographic, you know, moment of each. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly, you know, complicated and psychedelic and ornate and, you know, vastly unfolding. And it's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> no, totally. And, and what comes to mind here again, and, and, and it's interesting because we're, and, I, and I, I'm saying this so that um, our listeners have a little bit of patience with us, because I think what, after we go through this, you know, we've immediately ventured into the deep end of the pool. I want to yeah. come back to, the, I want to come back to the shallow end. So, you know, more particularly talk about the stages, how to do it, why to do it. But since we're going here, let's go with it a little bit further. To me, it's like what these states do, and again, I'm just saying what you're saying in my own language, is that they, they reveal that the kind of pixelated nature of, of mind, where we, we have this kind of, uh, you know, another metaphor would be, of course, pointillism. You know, they're fundamentally all that exists, and even quantum theory and the like um, speaks of this, Buddhist Abhidharma, kind of the um, atomistic um, psychology of foundational Buddhist teachings talk about how fundamentally, um, just like physical reality can be parsed down to um, atoms and subatomic particles, psychological experience can similarly be dissected to what they refer to as dharmas with a small d, which is basically like moments of experience or like the, the, uh, the atomic nature of perception, um, which, by the way, science is also working with this, trying to me measure things like mind moments. But to me, what's so interesting, exactly like you're talking about, it's it's a way to watch the monologue come undone, a way to watch um, egoic structure dissolve, because that's fundamentally what's happening here, is the ego is temporarily going offline in the kind of Bartle state. Um, it'll kick back in line, of course, in dreams to greater or lesser degrees. But during that magical liminal Bartle space, you can get an intimation of how reality is, in fact, pixelated, that if you take a very close look... Um, and this is what the spaces reveal to me is just this the lightning rapidity of how mind just pings from one image, pre-thought, full-thought, dreamlet, um, and this kaleidoscopic wave that you talk about beautifully in the book that is super fascinating. And if, and if you have some idea of what this train is like with the map that, that you provide, I mean, all of a sudden, you have a very accessible way to work with a heightened sense of awareness every single night when you go to sleep. And, and I want to get back to that later about how, obviously, this can be used for lucid dreaming and all that sort of thing. But um, this is what makes me excited about what, what you're doing, is, is just bringing a more sophisticated map to a territory we all experience, but usually just kind of gloss over as we reach for something a little bit more um, solid, stable, and real, even though in this case it's it's the dream state. So um, I just love what you're doing. So let, let's talk, if it's okay, let, let's backpedal just a little bit and maybe talk a little bit further, because we've been circumambulating this, like for people who are interested in liminal dreaming. Um, like, why bother? Why why should I why should I do this? What are some of the other benefits um, outside of this kind of deeper dive? What else can I learn from liminal dreaming? Right. I mean, and, and, um, and I'm sure your, 
your listeners just got a little taste of the kind of um, consciousness, philosophic uh, excitement that people like us get when we're when we're exploring consciousness through these through these means. I mean, I you know, as you know, somebody who um, who studied and practiced Buddhism and have, and had you know a, a very uh, a, a more more Zen meditation practice. I would I would say and has had a lot of practices. Uh, my primary practice right now is is this is the liminal dreaming um just watching my own mind unfold consciousness exploration but there's a lot of other things to do with it so um uh all of these stories about things that have happened in hypnagogia the um the you know kekule conceived the benzene ring in a hypnagogic state and the periodic table was conceived in a hypnagogic state louis agassi figured out how to chip away stone to find fossil, et cetera. You know, it's it's um it's the state in which, you know, artists and thinkers have that aha moment. And I myself have have figured out a lot of things in hypnagogia and hypnopomia. So in other words, creativity and problem solving, um, Thomas Edison and Salvador yeah. Dali, independently yeah. of each other, came up with the same practice for using hypnagogia it's to, it's to a generate tell- ideas. Tell us about that because that's a cool one. Uh, that's yeah. something that people can actually play with. So tell us, tell us about what Dolly and Edison were doing to actually kind of troll this state for for creative insights. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is a really good one, and is one that anybody can use. And I get a lot of great reactions from people um, to whom I teach this practice. So uh, Edison um, came up with a lot of his ideas for inventions in hypnagogia, and he invented like everything. And right. um, and Dali uh, uh, came up with a lot of his very dreamlike art, um, also in hypnagogia. And what they would do is um, each man, uh, when very sleepy, um, you know, in circadian rhythms, late afternoon when you have an energy dip is a great time to try this. They would um, uh, ha- sit back in a very, very, very comfortable, you know, big cushy armchair with metal plates on the ground on either side of the chair, in Edison's case, one side on Dolly. And Edison held a ball in each hand. Dolly kept a big brass Spanish key. He's very specific about that. And they would sit back in the armchair and um, and go into hypnagogia holding the items above the metal plates. And Dolly kept a sketch pad next to him, and Edison kept a pad of paper and a pencil to write down ideas, and they would go into hypnagogia, and then as soon as they started to slip from hypnagogia into sleep, their the grip on what they were holding would loosen, the thing being held would clatter onto the metal plate, and um, they would jolt up, and Edison would just start writing down ideas, and Dolly would sketch. And so, um, you know, basically they were just mining hypnagogia for ideas, you know, um, problem solving ideas, that kind of thing. Really easy to do this at home. You can hold, you know, you can hold a, a handful of change or a jingly toy, or you can use the Charles Turk trick and just lie down with your arm in the air. And as soon as you start to fall asleep, the arm will drop. You can keep pad and paper, sketchbook. Um, I actually uh, use a voice activated recorder. Um, there's phone apps you can buy for, you know, a few dollars that are um, voice activated, so they'll only record when you start talking. Um, a lot of different ways to capture whatever is running through your head at the moment of Nagajia, but it's, I mean, sort of the principle behind it is um, is both that it's 
that there's a, it's a very visionary space. You know, the space of the hypnagogia um, is this this open, you know, visionary creative space. You know, a place where you can go for the flowering of ideas. It's also uh, a different way of thinking. Again, because your normal daytime interior monologue shuts down, and so um, things that you already, where you already know the answer on some level, something like the benzene ring or the periodic table of elements, in both cases, problems that um, that somebody had been, you know, churning in their mind for a really long time. And then in hypnagogia, your awakened consciousness kind of gets out of the way, and the, the, the thing that your intuition knows bubbles to the surface, but you have enough waking consciousness to perceive it, to perceive it, and get the answer. So for creativity and for problem solving, you know, and for, you know, figuring out thing, you know, problems that you've been working on for a long time, the Dolly Edison exercise is a great way to get at those things. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I often think of, of Dolly's art. Is a kind of you know in my term you know bardo bardo art or now armed with this new term of it's a liminal art it's it's very dreamlike mm. it's not here it's not there and that I mean he's it's a perfect kind of artistic portrayal of the content of of this experience which is why when you look at his stuff it's just so mind twisting and the fact that he actually farmed it from that state makes it even more compelling I mean he really was. Um, painting his mind, wasn't he? It's just like, whoa, here we go. It's fantastic. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, I, that was I, um, so was Carl Jung, by the way. Um, uh-huh. You know, active active imagination right. practices are also about you know, um, you know, he thought meant he thought basically that the encounter with the unconscious that we get in hypnagogia and then translating it into using creativity to translate it into waking experience was really was enough to bring about mental healing. So yeah. he would go into these spaces and that's where the that's where the red book comes from, the images from the red book yeah. and I had the I had the pleasure of seeing um an an exhibit of Jung's art at the Santa Barbara um University Art Museum last May. And uh, I walked in and I I looked around and I said, "Whoa, yeah. Jung was a hypnagogia tripper for sure." Oh, yeah, yeah, and, and also a lucid dreamer. But you know, he he was very, <clears throat> excuse me, reticent to endorse lucid dreaming because he realized the the shadow elements quite quickly they could be used for you know yep. regular inflation, self-aggrandizement, and the like. And so he, I, I completely agree with you. He was an exquisitely sensitive dreamer. Um, obviously, liminal is an aspect I haven't really understood as much as the others. But so, talk to us a little bit more, Jennifer, if you would, about how else we can have these dreams. I, it, it, to me, this is kind of a double. There's two parts to this question because one is, you know, how can we cultivate them a little bit more overtly with things like the Dolly Edison um, approach? Um, and secondly, I think the other one that's just as compelling is. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.